following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Hello again, everyone. This is Pastor Alan Gilman for All Saints Lutheran Church for June the 28th, 2020. We took a break last week from our series on the Gospel of Mark for Father's Day, and now we're back at it. This is the remarkable gospel, and I've called it that because it is so full of all sorts of reactions from just about everyone, Um, because as far as I can tell, it's crafted, this version of the story of Jesus is crafted to, to evoke reaction and response from its hearers and its readers. And we're going to see a different kind of reaction in in this week's passage that we're going to be looking at. And so uh, I'm going to read a little bit more than the passage itself. We're going to be looking at particularly at Mark 9, verses 1 through 13, but we're going to start at chapter 8, verse 27, going back to a couple of weeks ago, uh, the passage we looked at that time. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. So this is Mark 8, starting at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and the others say, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, 
he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the gift that it is. We pray that you would enable us to hear what you're saying to us at this time. There are so many things going on right now. There's a lot of fear. There's confusion. There's lots of opinion, lots of voices, lots of noise. Would you break through it all and speak to our hearts that we would know better who you are and who we are and what you are calling us to do in this confusing time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go to the beginning of chapter 9 again. And he said to them, that's Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. To taste death means to die. It's an expression. And it appears that he's still talking to the the people that he was saying that anyone who comes after him, follows him, uh, must be willing to take up their cross, follow him. Um, And this was quite a shock. The whole uh, teaching on this, uh, on Jesus' part, was quite a shock to his disciples and to anyone else who was hearing him because they understood that when the Messiah would come, he would help the people of Israel uh, conquer the Romans. And now, while he's been affirmed by Peter as the Messiah, he's speaking about him having to suffer and other people, the, his followers, having to suffer too. And this was this was shocking and very confusing uh, to the the his disciples and the people of his day to hear anything like this. And so then he says this this thing about uh, that there are some standing here that will not die before they see the kingdom of God after it comes in power. Now this almost sounds like he's saying that there were people present with him that would still be alive when he returns, but that can't be the case because that hasn't happened yet. So what 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 is he really talking about? And it it could be this next episode that occurs in the Gospel of Mark, this that's known as the Transfiguration, that we're going to be looking at more closely in a second, that that's what he was referring to. And it's possible, um, but it seems that it's actually more than this, that he's telling people that they would Many of them, some of them, would still be alive when God's kingdom comes in significant power, which we see in the Bible beginning in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, and his followers begin to proclaim the kingdom of God in power by speaking about Jesus, his resurrection, his his judgment to come, his... his, um, um, and that as they shared about who he was and his word, they would see the, the kingdom of, of darkness, the gates of hell, as he 
as you referred to earlier in chapter 8, the gates of hell pushed back through the advance of his kingdom through the preaching of his word. So that appears to be what's really going on and that the by, by this speak about the people would be seeing his kingdom coming in power. Uh, and this experience that only three of his followers will have here in this first part of chapter 9, this transfiguration, uh, was a foretaste of the significance of who Jesus is and what he would be doing. And that they would get a glimpse of his true identity and his true role through this very unusual experience coming up. And so then we read verse 2, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them on a high mountain by themselves. This high mountain is not named. Um, it is likely a high mountain in the north of Israel. And scripturally speaking, mountains are often the place where uh, God has been encountered. And the, the two people that we're going to encounter in a moment, Moses and Elijah, experience God in very real ways on mountains. And in their case, it was both Mount Sinai, or it's also called Horeb. Uh, this is a different mountain altogether. This one is in the land of Israel. Uh, but is an, it's an experience of a revelation of God in an extremely powerful way on a mountain. And so God was about to give a very special experience to three of Jesus' disciples that would uh, be something that they would share later on. Uh, it was likely necessary to have this experience because of Jesus now speaking about things not going well in his ministry. Up till this time, his disciples, as most Jewish people, were expecting the Messiah to simply conquer and cast off the Romans and this sort of thing, as I, as I just mentioned. And now that he's talking about being arrested and tried and executed and this thing called I will, you know, rising in three days, which we'll talk about more in a moment, uh, it's very, very confusing. And so this experience uh, clarifies for them Jesus' identity and role uh, actually in ways that they really didn't expect. It's, it's not less than, it's far more than what they were anticipating. And so they end up learning that uh, Jesus is far more than they were thinking. And we learn that he is far more even now than we might be thinking. Continuing in the continuing in verse two, and he was transfigured before them. Verse three, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So he was transfigured, is the word that is used in most English translations, and it, it means changed. It's where we get the Greek word is where we get the word metamorphosis from. So he was significantly transformed before them. His clothes are what's described but it says he was changed so they're looking at him and he becomes dazzling and bright and maybe glowing and this sort of thing and it's interesting how they use uh, a very earthy sort of description uh, mark here again this possibly is peter's version of the story of jesus that mark wrote down as we read in verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, 
He's not saying this is a white that no one's ever seen, like whiter than the clouds. So, uh, they, they do get to see snow in, in Israel, in, in various parts of Israel, especially probably where they were. Uh, there might even have been snow around at that time at the at the peaks of, of whatever mountain, the peak of whatever mountain they were on, or it's possible. Anyway, they knew what snow was. Snow is extremely white. It's about as white as you can get. But especially in those days, clothes could only be bleached so white. Like, they weren't in the days of commercials of whiter than white and, and this this sort of thing. And so this is what the, his clothes were. They were whiter than white. They were so white is what he was saying. Um, and this idea of ultra white clothing uh, is reminiscent of visions of heavenly beings. And it's an, a, a possible allusion specifically to Daniel chapter 7, where it refers to the Son of Man, and Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man appearing before the Ancient of Days. So the the, uh, the Son of Man, this in Daniel, mysterious person that Jesus associates himself with, uh, comes into the heavenly realm, and the Ancient of Days, clearly God on his throne, is dressed in white. And now the Son of Man is dressed in white. And so it's speaking of Jesus' divinity, this very close association with Godness itself. And there's different theories about what uh, some Jewish people thought about the Messiah and whether or not he would be God himself become a man. We know that's true with the coming of Jesus. What they understood, they probably did not anticipate that. And little by little, they get hint after hint, in this case it's hardly a hint, of Jesus' own godness, his divinity. And then we read verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. It simply says Elijah and Moses and in the Greek, and they were talking with Jesus. And I want to say, what? Like, what a scene to all of a sudden... We don't know how they knew it was Elijah and Moses. I don't think they had these sashes or name name tags, but somehow they knew this was a, maybe I don't know uh, how they knew. And um, and I'm reacting a little bit like this because I really didn't think about that till now. Like how did they know that it that was Elijah and Moses? Uh, did Jesus introduce them? Uh, we don't know, but they knew. Um, and they were talking with Jesus. Like the the fact that this sounds so normal is what makes it so unusual. Um, now, as I've been going through the Gospel of Mark over these past many weeks, um, I've avoided turning to the other Gospels and the similar stories that we have there, especially in Matthew and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. Synoptics means like looking from the same vantage point, that kind of idea. The Gospel of John is written very different, even though there are some of the same stories that appear in John. There's a few of, of stories in John that appear in the Synoptic Gospels. But when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke for the first time, sometimes you kind of wonder, like, well, how come they're saying sort of the same things? When you look more closely, you see how very different Matthew, Mark, and Luke are from each other. It, it, it gives scholars a a lot of work to do, but um, it, you know, comparing them can be very interesting. But it's 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 exciting actually just to study Mark on its own, as I picture 
likely Peter in Rome or other places, shouting out in a loud voice to these crowds uh, over about an hour and a half the story, this story of Jesus that Mark might have heard over and over and over again before he wrote it down. And this tells me that uh, this 90-minute rendi- rendition of the story of Jesus is powerful in and of itself to change lives. It changed lives then. It could change lives now. And yes, it's helpful to look at the other Gospels. Very helpful. Um, but as much as I uh, as I can, I want to focus simply on what Mark is saying. Now, in this case, um, it... Uh, I didn't really cheat. Uh, Luke tells us a little bit what they were talking about. And and we learn in Luke 9.31 that they were talking about his soon departure from Jerusalem. It says, um, so in Luke's version, it's I believe it's Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So it sounds like they were having a strategy session. Like what in the what is this that's going on here? And so there's a real practical dimension uh, to this and that's really about all that we know. Um and then another thing that keeps scholars busy is why Elijah and Moses. They get into like why saying Elijah first and other place in other versions of the story it's Moses first. Uh, a typical interpretation is that they represented the law and the prophets. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets. Elijah being the first great prophet, even though he wasn't a writing prophet, which is this is another thing that with, with scholars. Like if it's supposed to be the books of the prophets, then why Elijah? Um, and so there's other people that say, no, 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 that's not what's really going on here. Um, but probably it's because the key characters that, that they are. Um, it's interesting that they're there. They're actually there, and it tells us something about this, the state that human beings experience between natural death, though Elijah didn't have a natural death, he kind of he went direct. You can read that in, in the books of the kings. Um, and he went up in a whirlwind. Moses had a mysterious death. We, it talks about God burying him, the book of Deuteronomy, and, and to this day we do not know where that is. Um, but still, here are two people after normal their normal earthly lives, living as personalities, recognizable personalities, in 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 a heavenly state, and one and they too like us are anticipating the physical resurrection, and so this is a a, a hint that um, there is uh, life after death, as we anticipate rising from the dead which will be at what the Bible calls the end of the age. And so, okay, so there, why Elijah and Moses? Probably because of the key characters that they are. Uh, the Messiah was expected to be a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 8 verse 15 reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this from Moses, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, in that section of Deuteronomy 18, we're introduced to the idea that God will bring other prophets, like Moses, to speak his word to the people. But there's also a sense that there's a prophet of all prophets that's going to be coming one day. And that became a way the people of Israel anticipated the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for the prophet to come. And so that might be why 
Moses is there. And then Elijah has a very close connection to the Messiah, which we're going to talk about a little more in a second. Verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And here again, there's a, a lot of time is spent as, why did Peter say this? Why did he say, let us make three tents just for those three? Well, I don't know how much we can deduce from what he said, because it says very clearly in verse 6, for he did not know what to say. He didn't know what to say. He just said what he said because he said what he said what he said. Why? Because they all, Peter again being a spokesman for them, so all three of them were terrified. People think, oh, I wish I could have an experience like this. Well, yeah, if you want to be completely scared out of your sandals. It, these experiences are actually terrifying. That, that's why many of the heavenly encounters begin with the words, fear not. It was fear not because people were afraid when they encountered these things. And um, so it was an experience that actually blew them away. But how, you know, what you could do from some of these details is really hard to know. There is something we can really know. There is a point to all this that we're going to get to. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice out of the cloud, sorry, I read it wrong, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So first of all, there's a, an illusion here, not illusion, illusion is when something is said that harkens back to, it's like an echo of something before. And and so a cloud on the mountain, well, that's like Mount Sinai. Um. And also, there's the cloud that led the people of Israel in the wilderness. So the association of God in the cloud, it takes you back to those days when when God was speaking to the people and leading the the people, which really wasn't something that had occurred for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, In fact, when the Babylonians conquered Israel, the the nation of Judah, the the southern kingdom, all that was was left after the Assyrians ransacked the north uh, in about the sixth century B.C., sixth seventh century, hundreds of years before this, when they dest- when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took most of the people to Babylon, Ezekiel the prophet saw the presence of God leave the temple and go into exile itself. Years and years before, in Moses' day, they saw God's presence, which was in this pillar of cloud and fire, fill what was then called the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And now Ezekiel sees that presence of God, the glory of God, leave. And it never returned. There's no uh, record of of, of God returning. That The people, a minority of the people, returned from the exile most of the people of Israel at this time, uh, in this in, in in the Roman era, were living outside the land of Israel. Most of the people had not returned, and as far as the people understood, God had not returned. And now Peter, James, and John are encountering the voice of God in a cloud. This is telling them God either has returned or is returning. 
more likely is returning, is returning in the person of Jesus. And this is why it's connected with the coming of the kingdom of God. The coming of the rule of God is happening before their very eyes. And it it seems in this scene of the transfiguration, it's a foretaste of what will be coming when the Holy Spirit fills them with power on the day of Pentecost, uh, a, a month and a half after Jesus dies and rises from the dead. And hear what the voice of God speaks to these three. This is not a word to Jesus. When he was when he was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, the voice of God speaks to him about, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now the voice of God is speaking to Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, verse 8, looking around, they saw no they they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone this is my beloved son listen to him then boom they probably didn't hear anything the scene disappears Jesus is looking back to normal and he's there alone with them verse 9 and as they were coming down the mountain he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead and there's that Harkening back to the scene in Daniel 7 about the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. But he tells them, don't tell anybody what you've seen uh, until he, Jesus, had risen from the dead. And there's that, they call it the secrecy motif, uh, where Jesus repeats more than once about not talking about his identity, not talking about this, that, and other thing. And he doesn't want these three, excuse me, he doesn't want these three to talk about this experience until after he's risen from the dead. And it's so it's it's when he said tell no one, it, they probably had to keep it from the other from the twelve as well. But they were supposed to talk about it after. That's why we know this, of course. And it was for them, and maybe it was to them to uh to be encouraged while Jesus was talking about his impending doom and not understanding about his resurrection. But also, it was probably to keep under wraps so that things would not get out of hand until they were equipped uh, with the Holy Spirit in power. And also after he rose from the dead and proved to them and to the world who he really was and, and what he had been saying all along was actually true. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And this gets mentioned more than once, and to us it's strange that they would find it difficult to understand what his rising would mean, but it was because it was completely unusual. The people of Israel expected a general resurrection. They did not expect a Messiah who would come, who would suffer first and and rise as an individual before the general resurrection. And you know, when you're so used to understanding things in a certain way, you could be told several times something different and not get it because it is that different. And there's, you don't have any grid for it. So it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And they're, you know, they're even talking about this. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? They just don't get it. Verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So what's going on here with this question is, it's very, very clear to them that he is the Messiah. 
But Elijah is supposed to come first. That's what their teachers have been telling them for a long, long time. And verse 12, he responds and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and agrees with how the scribes, the teachers of the Torah, the teachers of the law taught these things based on Malachi and Isaiah, that there would be a forerunner before the Messiah. And he's saying that does happen. Continuing on verse 12, and how is it written, the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Uh, but I tell you that Elijah has come, they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And so it's very clear that he's associating the coming of John the baptizer and what he did with the coming of Elijah. Um, and there, for some reason, a lot, a lot of believers still uh, contend or assert that uh, Elijah is coming, but it, that doesn't seem to be the case. Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist. Uh, there, there's more than one uh, reference that makes that clear in, in Matthew and in Luke, uh, as well as here. Um, it's interesting that he, he he mentions, though, but the, the Son of Man having to suffer, and it's it's, and, and that, that was written, and that's the first time we're encountering an encouragement to check out what the scriptures say about the Messiah's suffering, which is likely a reference to Isaiah 53 and Psalm uh, 22, uh, among others. And then he interest, it's interesting how he says that uh, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it's written of him. Whatever they pleased is how that whole situation with Herod and Herodias when um, first he was arrested uh, for criticizing Herod's marriage and then um, ended up being executed after uh, Herodias asked for his uh, John's head to be given as uh, brought on, on a platter at the prompting of her mother. Uh, so that happened, but this, where was it written that this would happen to him? And so this probably is another allusion back to how Elijah, while he was not executed, he also uh, faced the, the suffering under the uh, due to an evil queen, Jezebel, in, in, in that case. And so uh, Elijah was also a suffering prophet, and so John, the, uh, like John the Baptist. And so there is that parallel there. And so in in closing, um, we see that. This whole passage where we have an insight into the identity and, and role of Jesus as the divine Messiah, that just like they were encouraged to understand that that the way God works out his will uh, may not be the way we expect. And it was not working out the way his disciples were expecting but God was fulfilling his goodwill and doing things the way they were supposed to work out. And, and so we, too, need to accept that the way things are working out in our lives, the way things are working out in history may not be what we expect. But God knows what he's doing, and we need to trust him in the midst of very confusing times. Uh we also saw here how after all was said and done, God spoke, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And there he was, standing alone. And so we too need to listen to Jesus alone. 
so many voices, so much confusion. But are we listening to the voice of Jesus? Now, there's been a bit of a movement in Christian circles that claims to be listening to Jesus alone, and, and that's called, uh, it's, it has to do with being a red-letter Christian. And what that is about is the idea that we focus on the red letters of the New Testament. And what that's about is, and you probably have, you might have one, um, many New Testaments have the words of Jesus in red. Now, I'm not a fan of that because choosing the quotes of Jesus is actually interpretive because the the New Testament uh, doesn't have quote marks like we have in English. Greek was not written, like the original New Testament. The Greek isn't written, ancient Greek was not written that way. Um, and so there are statements that maybe this was part of what Jesus said, or maybe it's not exactly what Jesus said. But it doesn't really matter because the Gospels are inspired scripture. They're authorized by God. And so whether it's a quote of Jesus or not a quote of Jesus, or it's the letters of the New Testament written uh, by peop other people inspired by God's Holy Spirit to speak to us God's word, it, it, the red letters, the quotes of Jesus are not more inspired and more authoritative than the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the entire Bible. And yet, people who espouse this idea of red-letter Christianity, they put the quotes of Jesus over everything else of Scripture. And so, if Jesus doesn't talk about a particular issue, then it's like all of a sudden, well, we can make up our own mind about some of those things. And it's just, a, it's an abuse, in my opinion. It's an abuse of Scripture. So, that's not how we're, we should do uh, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Because what we have in Jesus is we have a God's own um, authorized teacher of his word. Jesus comes as the great rabbi. And Peter calls him rabbi in this section. Uh, rabbi, it means my exalted one, but it means teach. It's used for teacher. And it he comes as the greater than Moses teacher of Moses and the rest of Scripture so that we can understand Scripture the way Scripture is meant to be understood. And so listening to Jesus is not just listening to the, the quotes that we have of him in the Gospels, but it's understanding Bible from his perspective. And that's what we need like never before. And so I want to ask the question, are we listening to Jesus alone? Or are we listening to other voices? Are we overwhelmed by the news? Are we overwhelmed by what other people are telling us? Or are we spending time with him in prayer and the scriptures to hear what he's saying at this time? Are we listening to the promptings and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God himself speaking to us in this very confusing time. Are we listening to him? Or are we listening to others? Are we listening to him in our personal lives? Are we listening to him in our work lives? Or maybe are we listening to him in our retirement? Maybe we're not well. Are we listening to him in our sick beds? Are we listening to him in among our friends and families? Or are we, li are we listening to him 
in our loneliness? Are we listening to him? We need to hear his voice now like never before. That's what Peter, James, and John were reminded of, and that's what we are being reminded of today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for revealing your truth to us in the person of your Son. And thank you for the reminder that we need to listen to him. Open our ears, open our hearts to hear his word alone. We thank you in his name. Amen. I hope you're all and all your loved ones are keeping well at this time and listening to our Savior's voice. Until next time, this is Pastor Allen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca Thank you.